wonderful guy named Greg Pruitt is the president of a mission organization that we support known as Pioneer Bible Translators. For a number of decades, PBT has been doing a wonderful work translating the Word of God into native languages. So they have traveled literally all around the world partnering with other ministries to make sure that people are able to read the Bible in their own tongue. When I was in Bible college, they came and made a presentation and said that there were just over 16,000 groups of people around the world that did not have the Bible in their own language. And they were working hard to try to change that. They were here just a couple of years ago and told us that that number is now down to roughly 2,200 people groups around the world that don't have the Bible in their native language. That is an amazing work. It truly is. Because in order to pull this off, they need missionaries that are willing to go and live sometimes for decades in these communities so that they can learn the languages, learn the dialects, get everything written out so that these people actually have the Bible in a language that they can read and understand. It is a remarkable work. Pruitt and his wife, when they first joined Pioneer Bible Translators, were doing that very thing. They went to a small community in Africa where they were intending to stay for decades or however long it took to get a Bible to these folks. They were invested, highly invested. Now, Greg would say that they had just two goals when they went there. The first was to make sure that these people got a Bible in their own language. The second was to take the small handful of believers that were already there and magnify that number so that there would be a church in that community and one in each of the surrounding communities within walking distance. It took 12 years to accomplish those two goals. While they were there, Greg said he came to sudden realizations on a regular basis, things like this. To survive the challenge of the mundane, we had to choose prayer over despair. If you're living in an unknown culture and you're there year after year after year, oftentimes you're going to face the mundane as well as the miraculous. And Greg Pruitt would say, no matter what we were facing, we had to choose prayer because anything else could lead us to despair. That was really good teaching. He has written on that idea a number of different times, and most recently he's written a little book called Extreme Prayer. I've been reading it these past few weeks, and it has really stirred some things within my soul and reminded me of the importance of prayer and, and taken me to some new places in my own prayer life that I am happy to be in. I want to share some of Pruitt's ideas with you in the coming weeks, and as we go through all of this, I'll make sure that I tell you when it's coming directly from him because he deserves credit for what he has done and I want to make sure that he gets that. In this little book, he tells a story about when his prayer life began to change. It was on the mission field. He was a Bible college graduate, an ordained minister and a missionary and it wasn't until he was on the ground in the field that he began to really understand the power and the impact that prayer could have. They had only been there about three weeks when he and his wife were awakened in their little grass hut that they called home. Now, if we were going on the mission field, we might want something a bit more comfortable than what they had, but that's what they had. They were laying in this grass hut that an elder in the community had given them to live in. He said that they could hear a mother wailing all through the village, and they were not alone in that, so they jumped out of bed to go see what was going on. And 
When they got to the house where the sound was coming from, they had to find somebody that could interpret for them and let them know what was taking place. And that person actually helped them out a great deal, told them that this mother had a little boy who was seriously ill. And by all accounts, it appeared that he was going to die. Well, they looked around her hut and they couldn't find the little boy. He was nowhere in there. Well, the interpreter told them that he had been taken out into the bush where he was staying with a native healer. It was a last-ditch effort to try to restore the boy's health. Well, Pruitt, in a moment of impetuousness, said, well, maybe we can help. The mother was kind of taken off guard by that because she, like everyone else in the village, would have never thought to ask this missionary for help with something like this. Pruitt would say later, he maybe should have thought through it a little bit himself before he offered Because you see, he was there as a Bible translator, not a medical missionary. He wasn't a doctor. He had no medical training. By his own admission, the closest thing he came to medical training with into the mission field was a book on tropical medicine. That was it. But this mother decided to take him up on his offer, so she sent word into the bush to have the little boy brought back in. Pruitt went back to his hut, pulled out his book, and he started studying for all he was worth. He was pretty terrified by what he was facing. When they got the little boy back, he and his wife went back over to the hut that the little boy had grown up in. They went in, found him laying on the dirt, all but lifeless. He wasn't moving. He was unconscious. Pruitt started to go through in his mind all the things that he had read in this book, and he thought, well, it certainly looks like meningitis, but it can't be that because we don't have any medication with us to take care of meningitis. So take that off the list. Then he said, well, maybe it's malaria. We have medication for that. But he was stymied on the idea of how they would get a pill down the throat of an unconscious boy. So he thought, well, this is going to be tough. Standing over this nearly lifeless boy, he said he did the only thing he could. And he's a little embarrassed as a missionary that it was a last resort for him. He said, well, maybe we should pray for him. And he believed along with everyone else that this boy was not long for this earth. So he said, maybe we should pray for him. At the very mention of prayer, Greg says that that boy started to stir. His eyes opened, and he began to look around. He hadn't opened his eyes in a long time. He certainly hadn't moved in a long time. And at the very mention of prayer, those two things happened. Pruitt said in that moment when he realized that the boy was starting to move again, he thought, we better pray right away because God is already starting to heal him. So they gathered around the boy, and they commenced to pray in. By the time they were done, that little boy was sitting up. That night, he was laughing with his family. They got one dose of malaria medication down his throat, and that was all it took. His life was restored. His health was restored simply from the mention of prayer. It was in that moment that Greg says his prayer life began to change because he realized things like this. God is real, and he wants me to rely on him first, not as a last resort. He went on to say this about God and prayer. I learned not to pray about my strategies, but to make prayer the strategy. That is really good teaching. 
Would we choose not to wait and make God our last resort, but rather to invite Him in at the very beginning of whatever it is that we're facing? We are inviting God's strategies to govern everything that we do, rather than trying to put our plans in place and ask God to bless them. We're asking God to bless our steps and guide our steps. He should not be a last resort. He should be the very first step we take. In his book, Extreme Prayer, that's what Greg Pruitt teaches. Now, we're going to be looking, like I said, at several things that he teaches, but we're also going to be just looking at Scripture and seeing how God would reinforce this very teaching to get us to a place that we understand things just like this. We need to not pray about our strategies, but make prayer the strategy and trust God. There are places in Scripture that help us understand that different than most other places. I want to show you one tucked away in the Psalms. Turn there with me, would you? Psalm chapter 40. We're going to read just five verses of it. It is a Psalm of David, but it's one that each one of us can learn from, and it should resonate deep within our hearts when we hear what David has to say. Psalm chapter 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Now let's pick this psalm apart real quick. Starting with what the psalmist says in the very first verse. I waited patiently for the Lord, meaning that he had been praying persistently. He had put a need before God and David said, I was waiting for his answer. Many of you know exactly what that's like. You've prayed about something and God has not responded. You've prayed again and again and again. Well, oftentimes we will give up long before we should. In fact, when we're praying about things, there is no place for giving up. So the psalmist says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I put my request before him and I waited for his response. Rather than trying to hurry it along, rather than trying to make something happen, I waited patiently for the Lord. And look at what David says happened. He inclined to me and heard my cry. God turned his ear to him. God heard him. In his patience, God heard him. Now, you know, if you were here last week, that sometimes we have to pray consistently, pray without ceasing, because God wants to find out if we will pray louder than the other voices that surround us. In this situation, David says that he waited patiently for the Lord, and the Lord inclined to him. The Lord listened to him, and he responded. I want you to see what that response looks like. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. Some of you know exactly what that's like. You have found yourself in pits at different times. A pit is one of those things that identifies itself very simply as something that we cannot get out of on our own. We're in a deep pit, 
and we'll stay there until someone comes by and throws us a rope or offers us a hand to lift us up out of there. When David says, he pulled me up or he drew me up out of the pit, that's the exact kind of picture he wants you to grab hold of. God reached down and pulled him out of the pit. But if that doesn't speak to your heart, maybe his next word picture does. He got him out of the miry bog. You know what happens when you go into a miry bog? You get stuck. David was stuck. Have you ever been stuck? Most of us have. I know I I learned about getting stuck when I was in high school. My dad made the fateful mistake of giving me a four-wheel drive pickup to drive. That was was something that he has long regretted because I thought, wow, four-wheel drive pickup from dad. I need to see what it's capable of. And thankfully, the church provided me the opportunity to test that. I had a wonderful youth sponsor named Jim Dunning who also drove a four-wheel drive pickup. I had great youth sponsors in my life. Jim and I, I believe, were the only ones with four-wheel drive pickups in the church. We needed each other. We really did. So Jim called me and we would meet after school and we would head out to the miry bogs where Jim would drive in as far as he possibly could and get his truck stuck up to the gunnels. And then he would say, hey, Phil, I need your help. I could not leave a brother in distress. So I had to drive out and get him. And I would hook on and pull him out. And then we would trade positions where I would drive out into the miry bog and I would get my truck stuck. And then I would say, hey, Jim, I need your help. And he would come get me and he would pull me out of the miry bog. It was a wonderful ministry. It truly was. Not only for him, but for me. My dad, the first time he saw the mud hanging off the bottom of the truck, he said, what happened here? I said, you know, Jim got stuck. He called me, Dad. I had to go get him. I just didn't have an option. Dad was pretty understanding. The second time he saw the mud hanging off the bottom of the truck and I tried the same story, he said, well, either Jim is stupid or you are, one or the other. And and I said, oh, it's neither one of those, Dad, it's just a great ministry. The third time it happened and the mud was hanging off of the truck, Dad questioned my position in the family. And we we, uh, had to work our way through that. That's where I learned what it meant to be stuck. But, you know, that's just physically stuck. Some of you know what it is like, and so do I, to be stuck in other ways. Some of you have been stuck just in boredom. Some of you have been spiritually stuck, unable to make any type of a move. Some of you have been stuck in bad relationships or financial situations, or occupationally you have been stuck in a miry bog. And you have prayed repeatedly about it, waiting for God to hear you, to incline his ear to you and pull you out. The psalmist says that's what God did for him. He was stuck in the miry bog and God inclined his ear to him. Look at what happens. Verse 2. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. If you've ever been stuck in a miry bog or found yourself deep in a pit, you know exactly what he's talking about. When he was placed on the rock and the ground was solid underneath him, he found a security that he had longed for. If God has pulled you out of one of those pits or out of a bog like that and placed you on the rock, you know exactly what it feels like to know that the ground underneath you is not going to move. You are solid. You are safe. That is a security that you do not find anywhere else. That's exactly what the psalmist is teaching us. He was praying. He was praying for all he was worth, and God inclined his ear to hear him and respond. So look at what David did as a result. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. 
Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. David chose to give God credit for what he had done. Rather than trying to claim that credit for himself, rather than trying to shine the light on himself and say, look at what I have done, he said, look at what God has done. God put a new song in his heart, one that allowed him to praise the Lord for what had been accomplished in his life, one that allowed him to give credit to the Lord for what he had just come through. That type of new song makes all the difference in the world. It directs people to who God is. It directs people to what God can do. I love what he says next about this. And I want you to pay close attention to it. Verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now listen, verse 5. Listen close. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. Isn't that interesting? A couple of things that I want you to see in this. The first is pretty, pretty interesting doctrinal teaching for us. At the moment that he was pulled out of the pit and the new song was placed in his life and David realized what God had done, God multiplied his thoughts and deeds towards David. He multiplied, listen to that, his thoughts and his deeds towards David. They increased. God's thoughts and deeds towards David increased. That always happens when a person responds to God, whether God has just pulled him out of the pit or the bog or whether God has just brought him into relationship. When a person responds to God and develops a relationship with him, God multiplies, God multiplies his thoughts and deeds towards that person. We know from our study of Scripture that God created every person with salvation in mind. It was His intent that every person ever created would come to Him, not to perish, not to go to hell, but to come to Him for eternity, to develop a relationship with Him. But we know through history, not only the history of the Bible, but our own personal history, that not everybody does respond to the Lord. But here's what the psalmist is telling us. When people do, God multiplies his thoughts and deeds towards them. Now, you've met people just like this, so have I, that will tell you that they believe in God, but they don't necessarily believe in Jesus. Or they believe in God, but they have no use for the church. Or they believe in God, but God is this far-off, distant being that does care about them, but isn't involved in their life. Well, I want you to know from the psalmist's teaching that at that moment, they are limiting the power of God in their life. If they will respond to him and become his friend, then the psalmist is telling us God will multiply his thoughts and deeds in their life. They will be magnified, which means that you may know who God is because God has revealed himself to every person. You may know who Jesus is because God has revealed him through all kinds of gospel presentations. But until you respond to that, you are limiting God's thoughts and deeds in your life. And that's just the way it is. So you'll have people that will say they've prayed about things and God hasn't responded to them. One of our first questions might need to be, what's your relationship with the Lord? Are you talking to a far off distant God or are you talking to one you have relationship with? That's a good question because those that God has relationship with, he multiplies his thoughts and deeds in their lives. Isn't that cool? Because if you have relationship with the Lord, 
you have access to that. Now, here's the second thing that I want you to see from the psalmist. He says that he will tell everyone about them, but listen to his terminology. This is in verse 5. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The things that God is going to do are beyond words. Now, before we get into that, let me just share this with you. The right response when God pulls you out of the pit or the bog and places you on the rock is to build a house there. You set up housekeeping and you live there. If you don't believe me, then trust Jesus. Keep your finger here in Psalm chapter 40, but go with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Listen to what Jesus has to say. This is Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. When your feet have been placed on the rock... You build a house and move into it. You stay right there. When the winds come and the rains come, and they will, don't make the mistake of believing that just because you become a Christian and you build your house on the rock that you're not going to face the storms of life. You are. You will face them. But if you build your house on that rock, when the winds come and the rains come and the earth moves and the mud slides, you will be safe. You will be safe in that relationship. So when you've been pulled out of the pit, pulled out of the bog, you build a house, a secure house on the rock. Don't be like one of those fools that builds it on the sand. You build it on the rock and you will be safe. And here's what you'll find. God will multiply his thoughts and deeds towards you and they will be more than words can tell. When I read that in Psalm chapter 40, I, I got kind of curious about how many words it takes to describe God. So I just took the Bible as an example and started exploring some different things. Forty authors wrote 66 books over the course of 4,000 years of history to describe God. 66 books. In those 66 books of the Bible, there are 31,102 individual verses. Of those 31,102 verses, the shortest one is found in the Gospel of John. It is two words in that verse. The longest verse is 71 words long. The longest verse in the Bible has 71 words in it. It's found in the book of Esther. Well, that left me then wondering, how many words are there in the entirety of the Bible? And I started exploring. Found out that it varies by translation. So I just focused on the English Standard Version, the new version that I am preaching out of right now. I wanted to find out how many words there are, and there are computer programs that can help you with this. But before we get there, let, let's just give you a chance to see what you come up with. Now, I've already given you some of the early parts of the equation. How many words do you think there are in all of the Bible? Anybody want to venture a guess? Go ahead, Luke. I want to say about one million. One million. Okay, good guess. God-sized guess. Anybody else? Nobody else even wants to compete with Luke on that one. Anybody else want to just venture a guess? <laughs> In the first service, somebody said 10,000. So let's just take 10,000 and 1 million and figure out where we are between those. 
In the English Standard Version of the Bible, there are 756,755 individual words in the Bible to describe God. In the New International Version of the Bible, it's a little bit less. The Amplified Version adds 200,000 words to that. So somewhere between three quarters of a million and a million words to describe God. Yet the Bible would teach us in the Gospel of John that if all of the deeds of Jesus were recorded during his three-year ministry on this earth, there are not enough libraries to contain the volumes. So for us, when the psalmist says that when God multiplies his thoughts and his deeds towards us, and then he goes on to say that it is beyond words, that's what God is offering us. It is beyond words. It would take more than three quarters of a million words to describe what God has done for us. Isn't that cool to think about? It really is. It takes more words than all of the Bible to just describe what he's done for you. Imagine if somebody said to you that they wanted you to describe what Jesus has really done for you by dying on the cross. How many words would it take for you to capture that? How long would it take for you to actually try to describe what Jesus has done for you? Because of the world of sound bites that we live in today, we try to boil it down to simple little thoughts. Well, it's not simple. It's huge. This is what Jesus did for me. It's beyond words. If you were to try to describe God's grace as it was poured into your life and is repeatedly poured into your life, how many words would it take to describe that? How long would it take? Forty writers in 66 books over 4,000 years had to use three quarters of a million words to try to describe it. That's what happens when God multiplies his thoughts and his deeds towards us, his friends. That's what happens when he pours himself into our lives. Well, that sets the stage for what Greg Pruitt refers to as the whatever passages of the Gospels. When we understand that type of attention being poured out on us by God, it sets the stage for the whatever passages of the Bible. They are directly applied to our prayer life. Let me show you just one of them. We're going to go to the Gospel of John. You're in Matthew right now. Let's go to the book of John, chapter 15. This is one of the whatever passages. John 15, verse 15. Jesus' words. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now listen, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There's the whatever part of it. Whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you, but pay close attention to the relationship. You are no longer just one of my servants. You are now my friend. And you are operating as my friend. These are Jesus' words. And as my friend, you have access to the kingdom of heaven. Pruitt says in his teaching about the whatever passages that what we really find are the blank checks of God. He is offering us a blank check. Now, you know how this works. If somebody has ever given you a blank check, they have signed their name to it. It's off of their account. 
and they've told you to go and fill in the name of whoever you are paying and put in the amount and then just come back and tell them how much that was. If you've ever been given a blank check, you know what a great honor that is. Somebody trusted you with their account. There were different times as our kids were growing up that we would have to do that. We'd give them a blank check because they had to go and pay something. More often than not, in today's world, the terminology might look more like this. We gave them our debit cards. The kids were going to go somewhere and we said, here, take our debit card and you pay the bill. Do you understand the trust that it takes for that? Here's our debit card. You go do whatever you have to do. Then come back and tell us how much it was. That's all we need. We trust you to use common sense. We trust you with our account. Now, here's the best way for me to describe this. I love every person in Living Christian Church. I really do. I do not love you enough to give you my debit card. But my children, I do. They could have it. They can go and do what they need to do and then just come back and tell me how much it was. Well, God is offering us his debit card in these whatever passages. He is telling you, he is telling you that you have access to the accounts of heaven. Now ask and see what happens. And that's what Greg Pruitt is teaching. When we move from being a servant into being a friend, God looks at you and he says, I love you enough to give you my debit card. Let me show you what that might look like. We'll go back to the Old Testament, book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 3. It's a great story. 1 Kings chapter 3. Verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Now, here's the parts I love about this story, starting with everything that was happening. Solomon was making sacrifices to God, albeit not in the right place, he was making sacrifices to God. He laid down at night in between the sacrifices and fell asleep. And then God came and woke him up. Now you can just picture it. God came, hit him with an elbow. Solomon, wake up. Solomon woke up and God's very first statement to him was, ask me for anything. Can you imagine what that was like? Solomon, ask me for anything. You're in this position now. Now ask me for anything. So obviously Solomon hadn't really been asking the Lord for much. He didn't know he was supposed to. And now God has a hold of him and says, ask me for anything, Solomon, just ask. You have access to the kingdom. Here's my debit card, a blank check. Ask me for anything. And Solomon says, give me wisdom to do this job. Because he was a friend of the Lord and he used the debit card the right way, asking for things in the name of God, God responded. Listen in verse 10. 
It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. God gave it to him and then multiplied his thoughts and deeds toward Solomon. Solomon asked for this, and God said, I will give you that, and now I'm going to give you more. He multiplied his thoughts and his deeds toward Solomon because Solomon used the debit card well. He used the blank check well. David would say, as a result of that, God gave him more. And it still works that way. When we understand that we have access to the debit card of God, that means the kingdom of heaven, and we use it in Jesus' name, God is ready to multiply his thoughts and his deeds towards us. What an amazing gift. What a remarkable gift that God is ready to give to us. And those that have experienced it knows what it looks like. Now, here's a warning for you. It starts in verse 16. When you ask for something in Jesus' name, you better trust that the Lord is going to test how you will use it. And he tested Solomon. Those tests will come, and they will come very quickly. In the very next verse, God tests what Solomon did with the gift that he received. He tested what he got from the debit card, and God will do the same with you. So you be careful of that. You be aware of that. But then you trust that when God says to you, ask me, you can do it. And then get ready for the blessings. You get ready for the multiplication. It is coming your way. Now, some of you might say, that sounds really good, preacher. I just don't know how to pray that way. I don't know how to pull that off. I don't know how to ask God for things along these lines. Well, I'm glad you asked because there are some things that can help. And again, this comes from Greg Pruitt. So I want to make sure that he gets credit for this. Now, Greg says that most of us, and I would fit in this number, were taught to pray a certain prayer strategy or formula based on the word ACTS. Looks like this, A-C-T-S. It is an anacronym that comes from the word ACTS. Now, we can break that down this way, and a lot of you know exactly what this looks like. The A stands for a door. So in the prayer strategy, what is taught with this is that we start out by adoring God, worshiping God, directing our thoughts towards Him, which is exactly what we should do because it takes our thoughts off of ourselves and places them on the Lord. From adoration and worship, we move on to confession. We confess our sins before God so that we close up any distance that exists between us and Him. We make sure that we've come clean with the Lord. That takes us then into the third step, which is thanksgiving. We start thanking the Lord for what He has done in our life. Now, we've already worshipped Him for who He is. Now we're thanking Him for what He has done. And that puts us in the realm of the fourth thing, supplication. That's where we bring our request. So we start out in worship, we move into confession, thanksgiving is third, and then we present our request before God. And a lot of people have prayed with that very plan in mind. And it's a good one, it really is, albeit it's a bit sterile at times. It's kind of a mamby-pamby way of going about prayer. 
So Pruitt says, if we just shift it up a bit, we can move it out of the realm of sterile into the realm of something powerful, just by moving from acts to the word active. And now we're still using it as an acrostic the same way. So we'll start with A, which still stands for adoration or worship. I am worshiping God for who he is. Again, my mind is going to be where it should be when I start that way. Then I'm going to confess my sins, closing up the gap between me and the Lord so that I'm coming clean. I'll quickly move into thanksgiving, thanking the Lord for what he has done. But then the I is where it becomes a little more interesting. We're going to start interceding for other people and then presenting our own request. I'm going to pray for other people and myself. And when I do that, I'm going to have to make sure that the V becomes very active in my life. I'm going to have to vanquish Satan. Because when you're praying in Jesus' name, you better expect that Satan is going to rise up against you. When you are praying for things in Jesus' name and according to his will, there is an attack coming. So it is right and fitting in your prayer life to say, Lord, you keep him away from me. You keep him as far away from my prayers and my life as humanly possible, but more than that, supernaturally possible. You vanquish Satan. And then here's the next step, extreme prayers. These are the types of prayers that only God can answer. You start praying about some of those things. You ask God to do what only God can. Pruitt said he was at a conference one time, and over the loudspeaker, they announced that they had just brought about a miracle. said, we have just made a miracle happen. And Pruitt said his very first thought was anything that you can do on your own is not a miracle. You start praying about things that only God can do. Extreme prayers. Last year, we had a group of men that were praying for 52 baptisms in this church. At the end of the year, we saw 50 people that were baptized into the Lord. We're still waiting on the other two, but 50 is pretty cool. That's God-sized because we said, Lord, this is what we want to be involved in. We want to see one person give their life to the Lord every week of the year. And we came awful close because that's God-sized. And we know that there are some other baptisms that are waiting to happen that will fill in those other numbers. That's God-sized. The elders will be presenting in two weeks some extreme God-sized things that are going to require the church praying to make it happen. They're extreme prayer ideas that require an active prayer life. But when they happen, when they happen, God multiplies his thoughts and his deeds towards us. I don't want you to make the mistake that a lot of people have, believing that prayer is a way of getting heaven to do what we want done. That's not it at all. Prayer, and particularly an active prayer life like this, is really a means of God pulling us close that we might hear what he wants us to do. That's what an active prayer life does for us. It draws us close to the Lord so we can hear his voice. Our kids played sports at Libby High School. All three of our kids played tennis at one time or another. Nick, our oldest son, played basketball for four years. Eli played golf for a couple years, but they all played tennis. And we loved watching them play sports, loved being there with them. Golf and tennis, in all honesty, were actually my favorites. 
I love the fact that our kids were playing for those coaches. I love the fact that they got to learn life skills and life sports to take with them forever. Love the fact that they were playing that way. Golf was a little bit frustrating because parents aren't allowed to go to golf matches. You can't be there to see your kids play. Dan Rohr, who goes to this church, is actually the golf coach, and he set it up one time so that Matt Warner and I could be there to see Eli get off of the, the first tee box. We had to hide in the trees so we didn't break any regulations, so we were behind the bushes watching Eli tee off, and that's all we could do just one time. Tennis matches were a lot of fun to go to. I loved going to them, and I found myself getting all worked up when the kids were out there playing. Katie might be out on the court, and she's playing her heart out, and I'm screaming and yelling for her, and every bit of me wanted to run up to the fence and call her over when they were taking a break and say, hey, do this. This is what your opponent's doing, but you can't do that. Parents aren't allowed to go up to the fence and talk to their kids, which I am starting a petition on because I believe that's wrong. But here's what can happen. Coaches can go up to the fence. And between matches, they do. Kyle Hanna, who attends church here, is the tennis coach. Kyle would go up to the fence, and he would call his players over, and he would tell them what they needed to do, sometimes talking to them for a long time at the fence. And the coach could stop the match as long as he wanted to and talk to his players as long as he wanted to. And then when he was done, they would go back out, and the, the match would resume. I found myself every time wanting to know the exact same thing. What did he say? So when the match was over, that was my first question. Katie, Eli, Nick, come here. Tell me what Kyle said to you when he was up at the fence with you. What did he say? Well, that's the same thing in, in an active prayer life. God's calling us over to the fence. He's telling us what we need to do. He's telling us how to, to stay in the game. He's telling us what we need. It's your choice whether you approach the fence. But before that, it is your choice to take on this type of a prayer life that you might go places with God that you have never been. Those are places that are beyond words. There aren't enough words in the English language to describe what God would do. If it took 40 authors, 66 books, and 4,000 years to describe it, it'll take you longer than that. Get there and see what happens. Over three quarters of a million words to describe God, and it'll take you that many to describe what He did when you embrace this type of a relationship. It's cool stuff. We'll be talking about it for the coming weeks. I hope you'll be here with us. Why don't you stand and pray with me. Father in heaven, David records this type of teaching that we might learn from it. I pray we will. The psalmist writes these types of things so that we can see what it means to be pulled out of the pit and the bog by you and have our feet placed on the rock and receive a new song. Help us do that. And I pray, Lord, that all of that will happen, as David would say, for your glory and your praise. Don't ever let us lose sight of that. Now, Father, I'm asking that you stretch us in our prayer life, that we will pray first and we'll pray big with great expectation. In your name, Lord, help us hold on to that debit card and use it in the right times. You've entrusted it to us. We won't squander it. Help us use it. Father, I'm praying right now for those that have not moved from the realm of being a servant or a God-fearer or somebody who just knows you into the realm of being your friend. Would you let today be the day? In Jesus' name, amen.